with that Bible. So Luke chapter 12, verse 49. Hear now the word of God. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? So you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for the words of Christ this morning. We, we've come here today, your people who have been called by Jesus, because we want to offer you our, our sacrifice, our offering of praise. We want to serve you in that way, but, but Father, we want you to serve us. We are in desperate need of it, in fact. We want you to serve us through your word. We believe it is the revelation of God without error. We believe it is profitable for us to guide us, to lead us, to save us, to make us more like Christ. And so once again, as we do, we place ourselves under it and ask that we would not form it to our desires, but rather we would be formed to yours. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I love C.S. Lewis's fables in the Chronicles of Narnia. and One of my favorite passages is when Lucy and Susan ask Mr. and Mrs. Beaver to tell them about Aslan. And if you're familiar with his fables, Aslan is the, is the Christ figure in Lewis's uh, stories. And they ask him, is, is Aslan a man? And Mr. Beaver says, Aslan a man? Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the woods and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about being safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. I think kings are often not safe. After all, they have authority and power. The kings we're drawn to, though, are good, aren't they? Wonderful, but not always gentle. And I think that's what we see here in the passage before us. We we see the wonder of Jesus, but we also see, I think in very stark terms, 
what we might call the severity of Jesus. And to be honest with you, I found this passage very difficult to, to get my arms around, to, to, um, to discern what the Lord wanted me to teach and how to explain it. It's almost, it's almost like a, a, you've gotten on a horse that is much too fast for you and much too big, and you want to take it someplace, but God will not let you. The horse won't let you, right? It's just driving you to a place. And there are times in studying this passage I... I spoke to my father, our father, and I said, am I really supposed to say that? Is this really what you want me to teach? Is this really what this passage explains? In fact, I'm finding myself more and more in this section of Luke having this conversation with God. We are in what many have called the travel narratives in Luke's gospel. And early Luke is, is wonderful, isn't it? We call it the Galilean springtime. Everything's beautiful and sunny and flowery and Jesus is performing miracle after miracle and and uh, and and it's just these beautiful crowds coming to him and and his ministry is growing and growing and they all keep asking that this man who has great compassion and power who is he who is he and finally in Luke 9 we find who he is he's Christ he's the promised one he's the Messiah the Savior the Son of God and, and it's in Luke 9 verse 51 when the Bible says and the days drew near for him to be drawn up he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he begins to travel, leaving Galilee in the north, down to Jerusalem in the south. This is the travel narratives, and, and it's in these passages, as people follow him literally, he begins to teach them what it means to be his follower, what it means to be his disciple. And therefore, in, in the middle of Luke's gospel, we don't see many miracles anymore. That's not the point. We've already established who he is. We receive much of his teaching here, many of his parables here, and his teaching is not easy. Last week we saw that we are to watch and be faithful for his return, and if we are uh, unfaithful stewards, Jesus said, I will cut you to pieces and assign you in a place with the unfaithful. That's hard to hear. And, and even today we, we see him continue to re- speak of his return, the context of fiery judgment, he is urgent warning to find shelter before he comes. And in the midst of it, we, we learn about his agony. We see that Jesus is under enormous stress, which he's living every minute of his life. In fact, I think what you see here is not the popular understanding of Jesus. What I mean by that is you, if you were to ask somebody, maybe even in this room, hey, tell me about Jesus. You probably would not hear them say, oh, he's the one who can't wait till he brings fire upon the earth. You probably wouldn't hear them say, oh, he's the one who came to divide families, even father against son and mother against daughter. And it's because of these teachings that you see there, there was always these two reactions to Jesus. Right? People either loved him or they hated him, right? They, they, many thronged to him, and others plotted his death. Today, what, what's unfortunate is many people know about Jesus, and they neither love him or hate him. They find him sentimental, like he's a, a hallmark spokesman, ready to give you an inspirational thought whenever you might need one. Right? They find Jesus boring. I will tell you, I think based on the authority of God's word, you don't find a single character in the Bible that ever found Jesus boring. Right? And if you found, find Jesus boring, you haven't met the real Jesus. 
I don't think you'll find him boring this morning, I hope. May God help us. But he will challenge us. In fact, let me reintroduce him to you this morning as we consider the severity of Jesus, first seen in the fact that Jesus offers costly love. Jesus offers costly love. Verse 49, he says, I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that it were already kindled. When he refers to fire bringing upon the earth, he is referring to judgment. The Bible constantly refers over and over again to the judgment of God on the day of the Lord as a day of fire. For instance, Isaiah 66, the Bible says, The Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. The Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or consider the gospel of Luke. So earlier when we started our study, the, John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water in Luke 3. But he who is mightier than I is coming, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to be baptized by fire? Well, he goes on and says, his winnowing fork is in his hand to gather, gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And so when Christ speaks about, I want to bring fire upon the earth, he's very clearly saying, I want to bring judgment down upon the earth. The winnowing fork is in his hand. He comes again in flaming fire. Now the question I have is, why is the judgment of God referred to as a, as a fiery act? Right? Is, it, is it hot? Right? Is it painful? What, what, what about the judgment of God is fire-like? Well, you think about, what, what does fire do? And fire, of course, fire does many things, but fire does two things that I can think of in particular for this context. It either, fire either cleanses or it consumes, right? And it all depends upon what it's interacting with. So, for instance, uh, in the Carn house, um, when, when we, well, listen, our tablecloths, they last one meal, okay? Um, it, ha- half the food either ends on the floor to feed the dogs or on the tablecloth, or often on each other, right? And so if you're ever eating with the carns, just to let you know, you're in the splash zone, okay? And uh, you don't wear nice clothes because you're going to get something on you. That's, that's what, and so the tablecloth lasts one meal, and so we have to cleanse the tablecloth. How, do we do so with fire? No, because it would consume it. So we find other ways to cleanse it. But if you had a piece of ore, right, gold, steel, and you wanted to remove the impurities out of it, how would you cleanse that? How would you purify it? You would do so with fire, right? If you picked up a piece of ore, you wouldn't know what's good about it or what's dross about it. You have to put it in fire in order for the dross, if you will, metaphorically, the evil to be taken from it that you might have the purity left behind, right? And I'll I'll tell you, the world is full of dross, isn't it? Full of suffering and evil and decay and oppression and injustice, and Jesus is coming to cleanse the world with fire. 
And what will remain will be purity and love. And there will be no more sorrow or sadness or death or decay or oppression or injustice. Just beauty and majesty and love and peace and glory in this new earth. And he's not going to just do it to the earth. The Bible says he's going to do it to people who live upon the earth. And some people will be purified, completely glorified, the Bible says. And all the evil from us will be taken out of us. And we will finally be made like we are supposed to be, a perfect, beautiful reflection of our Creator. Others will face eternal damnation when He comes. That's what He's bringing. Some will be cleansed from their iniquities. Others will be consumed. Is He safe? No. He is not safe. Is He good? He is perfectly good right he is both wonderful and severe and you may say well okay i get the severe part that sure doesn't sound wonderful to me let's just think about that for a moment right when we think about judgment of course especially in 21st century america we 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 kind of rebel against it. That's our culture. Jesus does not, clearly, at least you have to agree with that. Verse 49, he says, I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that are already kindled. He's yearning for it. And I believe if you would actually think for a little while about justice and about judgment, that you would probably find yourself yearning for it too. And just think about all the bloodshed in this world. Think about all the widows and the orphans that are ground into the mud. You think about the genocide and the oppression and the injustice. You think, does crime really pay? Well, I, I say with all deference, consider your presidential candidates. Right? I'm not sure they got to their point in their life because of the kindness and generosity in their hearts. I, I, I look around and I see corruption and I see oppression and I see people getting ahead because they use other people. And, and in fact, do you think, why even work for justice why, if we're all going to die, if there is no final accountability, if in a hundred years they'll all forget our names, they'll never know we're here, why even work for it? If there is no judgment day, injustice wins. We need justice. We need the day of the Lord. In fact, this is how the church grew how did a handful of Jews in a hick corner of the Roman Empire change the very culture of the mightiest empire on the world? How? With no wealth or power or, or education, how do they change it? They changed it because they had lives that attracted the masses that they might hear their message. And there was two characteristics in the early church that secular historians have identified as the reason why people came to them. Love for enemies... And join suffering. Right? And so when the plagues would hit the Roman cities, and everyone would leave except the dying in the streets and the Christians. And they stayed there. And they cared for the, the, the dying, even if that meant they caught the plagues, right? Or, or when the Christian was robbed or killed or thrown to the lions, you know, there's not a single historical uh, event, a, a single historical account about another group of Christians rising up and attacking that city. For 300 years, there was no retaliation whatsoever. Why? Because they trusted that to God, that God would bring that, that judgment was for Him, and so that they can live with forgiveness and sacrifice and and even joy in the midst of suffering. In fact, I, I would suggest to you, if there is no judgment, how do we even know something is wrong? How do you know something's bad if there is no standard by which we are measured? Right? If I trample on someone to get ahead, and you say, well, that, you can't do that. Well, why? Well, why do you say I can't do that? 
Who gives you the right to tell me what I can or cannot do, right? Look around in this world. Is this world not a, a violent place? There's violence all over the place, right? Survival of the fittest. If I, if I trample on you to get ahead, that just means I'm stronger and you're weaker. Why in the world is that wrong unless there is a standard by which we must be measured? That standard is the holiness of God and Christ will come and judge all of creation by that standard. And we need it. In fact, I would suggest, well, uh, Tim Keller uh, often says, if there is no judgment, what hope is there for in the world? But then he adds, but if there is judgment, what hope is there for me? Right? Because the problem is, is the world's just, the evil's just not out there, it's in here. Isn't it? I mean, I don't even keep my own standard. Do you? I, I, if I don't keep my own, how can I keep God's? So, Jesus, so how can we have hope in light of judgment? Well, Jesus says, I've come to bring fire and, notice this verse 50, I've come to be baptized. You see that? I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Here Christ opens up to us. He allows us to see into his heart. He allows us to see something I think we often miss with Jesus. That there is something coming that until it comes... Right, until it's finished, Christ says, I'm in constant distress. How great is my distress until it is accomplished. It's like a, a college student facing finals, right? And all the papers and the exams. And there's this constant overshadowing until the finals are over. It's like a pregnant woman who's in the final days of her pregnancy and the constant overshadowing of her life of the concern about the delivery and, the, and, and, and bringing this baby into the world. Or it's like a suspect facing trial and the trial date comes closer and closer and there's this overshadowing. This is what's happening in Christ's life. There might be times of peace, but, but there's this overshadowing distress that is happening in his life. In fact, that phrase, my distress, is usually used to describe a arm me besieging a city, right? And so an, an army surrounds a city and, and the people are trapped inside. There may be times of joy and levity in there, but it's always overshadowed by this army outside. There's always this terror. Jesus says, I'm in constant distress until what? My baptism. So what is that? Because he's already been baptized by John. We've seen that already in Luke's gospel. Well, you remember there's a time when, when James and John come to Jesus and they say, Hey, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, can we, can we be in your cabinet, right? Can, can we be vice president and, you know, can, can we sit at your right and left hand? You remember what Jesus says to them? He says, Can, can, you, can you guys um, drink the cup I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm about to undergo? So he, in, in the uh, Hebrew parallelism, he's linking this cup with his baptism. And, and, and then we know when he gets to the garden, what is he praying about? It's God, can you take this cup from me? Right? The cup, as you perhaps know, is the wrath of God. See, the baptism is, is like his cup. It's the wrath of God. The baptism is the fire of God that he's come to bring upon this earth. In other words, before Jesus brings fire upon the earth, it, he brings it upon himself first. 
He takes the fire of God upon himself. And he says, I wish it would already happen. Wish it were already kindled, right? I, I wish it was already happening in my life. How great is my distress until it happens. He's begun his march to Jerusalem. And in every passing day, our Lord is growing in distress over his crucifixion. He's months away from the cross. And he's already suffering for our sins even before he bore them. And then finally, the day before his crucifixion, he gets to the garden, right? And he prays there in Luke 22, verse 44. The Bible says, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. His sweat became like great drops of blood. So if the prospect of Jesus' crucifixion is just the prospect of this baptism means he's sweating blood. If at the prospect of it, that, 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 that he's... He's on his knees begging for another way. What must the experience have been like? If just the prospect of the baptism is enough to send the eternal Son of God into shock, if just the prospect of it is, is enough to nearly kill him from the stress, what was the actual experience of receiving the fire of God upon himself really like? And yet he was willing to take it. So you wouldn't have to. You don't have to. He took it upon himself. He came first not to bring justice, but to bear it. He came not with a sword in his hand, but a nail in his hand. He took our place upon the cross, taking our punishment that our sins deserve, so that when he comes back, he could destroy evil without destroying you and I. I tell you, this is the, the love of God. You need to understand, if you want to understand the love of God, you have to understand the judgment of God in which Christ was willing to bear, that he would take the very fire of God upon himself for you. This is the love for which you were made to find your fulfillment. The love of Christ is what you are made for. And I don't know how many people have all the ambitions in life and, and, and reach the pinnacle and check all their boxes and meet all their goals and they look at all they have accomplished and they say, is that it? Is that it? Is that all I've been giving my life to? So we're not made for that. We're made for the love of Christ. You can't outwear this love. You can't get past this love. It's a love which went to the cross to bear the fire of God for you. You need to... Receive him for it. And, and, and if you realize this, um, if you come to Christ because he has borne your punishment, please know that it will cost you. Right? He's worth it, but it's going to cost you. It's going to bring division. Consider, secondly, that Jesus brings division. Verse 51. He asks a question. Do you think I have come to give peace on earth? Right? And we would, of course, all answer, yes. That's exactly what you came for. Right? Did not the angels say when you were born, and peace on earth? I mean, uh, did you not heal people and say, go in peace? Did you not send out your apostles and say to them, you say peace to this house? Right? Uh, how beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim peace? As far as possible, live at peace. With all people. So yes, Jesus, we expect you to bring peace on earth. That's what you came for. But finish verse 51. No, I tell you, but rather division. So what, what does that mean? Because clearly we have all these passages that say, yeah, peace, peace. You brought peace. But now you say, no, I brought, I brought division. Well, of course he didn't come to bring division between us and God. Right? We don't, 
We don't need any help with that. We're good at that. He came to reconcile us with God. He came to bring peace with us with God. Romans 5.1 We have therefore been justified by faith uh, in God through Jesus Christ. Therefore we have peace. Right? Romans 5.1 he, he came to give us the peace of God. He also came to give us um, that's peace with God. He came to give us the peace of God. Philippians 4. You know that, that passage? Verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything but in everything with thanksgiving present your requests to God. And what? And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. He came to give us peace inside, but though we might have peace with God and we might have the peace of God, notice that we may not have peace with one another. There will be division on this earth. In fact, you see that there in verse 52, how we will be divided. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, right? See, if you have in-law issues, it's biblical, right? right? So he's, he's come to divide. Not that he's not advocating division, but he's come to select a people for himself. He's come to separate us for himself. And, and once we become passionate about Christ, there is going to be conflict with those who are not passionate about Christ, just as we saw happen with Jesus. Now beware, therefore, of those people in our world who are running around shouting peace, peace. All we want is peace and willing to sacrifice truth in order to achieve peace. There are thousands of well-meaning religious leaders who are saying, let's set truth aside so that we can have peace with one another. For instance, Jim Carrey on 60 Minutes. Not that he's an expert on anything, um, except making you laugh perhaps, but he says, I'm a Buddhist, I'm a Muslim, I'm a Christian, I'm whatever you want me to be. It all comes down to the same thing. You see, the heart desire out of that is, let's just get along, let's just have peace, let's put what divides us aside and have peace. But the problem is, the thing that divides us is Jesus. I can't put him aside. He is divisive. He divides even in the family. And the reason is, as I've shared with you in the past, is no one ever taught like Jesus. All religious leaders say, what you think about me doesn't matter. Just believe this. I'm not important. This truth is important. Jesus comes and says, I am the truth. What you believe in me determines everything. No one ever said that. Every other religious founder always said, don't worry about me, just love God, just follow God. And Jesus says, you must love me above everything. And it's just not religious founders. It's every imam, every rabbi, every pastor, every prophet, every scribe. Every single one of them always says, doesn't, I don't matter, this truth matters. Except one person named Jesus. Of the 10,000, the 10 million credible religious leaders, he is the only one who walked upon this earth and says, what you think about me is the most important reality. If I don't know you, you can't enter the kingdom of God. Whoever believes in me will not be condemned. Whoever doesn't believe in me is already condemned. Right? John 14, uh, Luke 14, 26. We'll get there in a couple years. But he says um, that... That Listen, if you don't hate your father and mother and son and daughter and even your own life, you are not worthy to be my disciple. Who talks like that? Can you imagine if you came here this morning and said, listen, guys, if you don't love me above all things, if you don't love me more than your children, you are not worthy to hear me preach. 
then what would you say? Oh, tell me more. No, you, you, would, you would flee the building, hopefully, right? Because the Kool-Aid's coming out in a little bit, right? And you don't want to be there for that part of the service, right? That's crazy. Who talks like that? Jesus does. Only one who ever did, right? Said to the rich young ruler, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He says, sell everything and come follow me. I must be more important than everything. Nicodemus wants to talk theology. Jesus says, okay, enough of that. You need to believe in me, otherwise you're a dead man. He says, eat my flesh, drink my blood. I should be your meat and drink. It's always, always, always about Jesus. And because it is, he divides, right? You either believe he is who he says he is, or you treat him as some crazy egomaniac. But you can't just admire him, right? You say, I don't do either. I don't, I don't, I don't treat him as a crazy egomaniac, and I don't treat him as the Lord. Well, I'll tell you, you haven't met the real Jesus. You have this silly hallmark Jesus that you want to keep in the corner. That's not the real Jesus. You either have to hate him or you must surrender to him. He divides. There will not be peace on this earth until the Prince of Peace reigns perfectly upon this earth. And I'll tell you, it's painful, isn't it? Some of you know exactly what this is like, don't you? You know what it's like to be divided in your family because you follow Jesus. And that hurts. The wonderful thing is that Christ gives us new fathers and mothers, doesn't he? A hundredfold, he tells us. We're to be family to each other here. We're to cultivate those relationships within this church family. But even beyond that, we're to continue to love our biological family. I was, I was informed by my children on August 25th that it is four months till Christmas. Right? Right? Which is not what I wanted to hear. Right? I, I, I will be with family on Christmas, and you will be with family on Christmas. And, and how, how, how are you going to do that? Right? You go with a prayerful... You can't do this without praying. I, maybe you've tried, and you, I can't succeed. You need to pray. God, help me. I want to love them. I want to love them where they're at. I want to absorb all their nonsense and hurtful comments and return it with love. I want to set aside any expectation of how I think they should act towards me and just keep loving them like Jesus did. Jesus loved them. We want to seek unity through Christ. But quite often there's division. There's a cost in following Jesus. But friends, how much greater is the cost of not following Jesus? As you see, thirdly, Jesus demands a decision. Verse 54. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be scorching heat, and it happens, right? They, they know the south wind brings heat. The Negev Desert is in the south, right? We, growing up in California, we had the Santa Ana winds that come in from the northeast. We knew it was going to be a hot day. They see a cloud rising in the west. Well, out west is the Mediterranean Sea, right? It's going to, be, it's going to rain. Jesus, you, you know that. They could read the weather. They, they could read the signs, but despite that skill, they could not see the fact that God was standing right in front of them, having a conversation with them, as he says in verse 56, you hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Right? You can tell the weather, but you can't see the signs all around you. Remember that paralyzed guy who never walked a day in his life? I walked up to him and I said, get up, and he got up and ran around in circles praising God. You might want to take note of that. 
Remember that dead boy who they were carrying on that funeral coffin outside the city of Nain to put him in the ground? And I happened to walk up and I said, young man, get up. And the dead man rose and went and hugged his mother. You think you might have wanted to pay attention to that? Have you heard my teaching? Have you heard my claims? Have you seen my flawless life? You might want to pay attention to that. In other words, what Jesus is saying is I'm not hiding this from anyone. It's obvious. Just like the weather. You hypocrites are missing it because you don't want to know. And a storm is blowing in. And the heat of judgment is coming. And you're missing it. And it was not simply a problem for them. It is a problem for us even today. Right? Every, everyone wants to know the weather. Right? I'm, I bet 80% of you checked the weather this morning. We, we all want well, we got weather apps and we got weather stations, right? weather channels. We're, we're constantly obsessed. We, we want to know the weather. Why? Because we want to prepare for the future. Right? We want to know what, how to prepare for this day or this week. And, 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 and Jesus is saying, you're obsessed with the weather so you know whether to wear short sleeves or long sleeves, but you're not ready to get, for etern- get ready for eternity. Right? Are, are you going to heaven or hell? I don't know, but it's going to be hot today. Are you, are you ready for fall? You know, I, I don't know. There's 40% chance of rain, right? And, 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 but Jesus says, are you ready for meet me? Are you ready for eternity? Well, I'm not going to worry about that. And he says it's, it's, it's insanity. You're, friends, how many times are we so tempted to look at things that are permanent? That it's just going to, it's just chaff. It's going to burn away and treat it as if it's, uh, excuse me, look at things that are temporary and treat them as if they're permanent. Keep small things and elevate them. Why we ignore the huge things in our life. Well, I wonder, my, my brothers and sisters in Christ, what are you putting off in your life so that you can focus on the silly and the trivial? What are the things you know you ought to be doing, you long to do, and you have intentions to do, but you're not doing them because you're so preoccupied with silly things like the weather? Christ is saying time is short. The time is short. Prepare. In fact, he he not only demands a decision, he, he encourages us one way, doesn't he? He wants us to be saved. He encourages reconciliation. Consider, fourthly, that Jesus encourages our reconciliation. In verse 57, he says, And why do you not judge for yourself what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge. And the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you into prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the very last penny. Right? This is Jesus' friendly legal advice. He says, someone is guilty of a crime. There is no defense possible. What's the best option, therefore, is to settle outside of court. Right? Settle with your accuser on your way so you do not have to stand before the judge. So you do not have to be sent into prison. Now, in case you're curious, God is the judge. That's not you. Right? You're actually the guilty individual on your way to stand before him. All of us were like this at one time. And Jesus is saying, be reconciled before it's too late. Can you, can you just imagine for a moment? What, what if you had committed some heinous crime? And you're just as guilty as sin. And there's eyewitnesses, and there's forensic evidence, and everyone knows that you, you are guilty of this terrible, terrible act. 
And so what do you do? You, you, you liquidate your retirement accounts, you sell your possessions, and you take that money and you hire the best attorney that you could find. And, and he, he looks over the case and he, he pulls all the books off the shelves and, and he looks for all the legal loopholes and, and whatever he can do to try to get you out of this. And you finally sit down and meet with him. And you say, well, what, what have you found? And he says, listen, uh, there's no way out. I have searched everything. I have called every lawyer friend I know. There is no way out. There is no defense possible. Right? There's no loophole I can find. You just better get ready for the consequences because you are going away for a long time. Can you imagine going home and, and feeling that stress? Right? There's nothing. There's no hope. Right? And, and every day as the court date gets closer, can you imagine the sleepless nights and the constant anxiety and distress you might experience? And then one day you get a letter in the mail, and it's from the man that you committed the crime against. And you're kind of nervous to open it. You're not quite sure what he has to say. Why is he even writing you a letter? And you, and you open the letter, and he says, I'm worried about you. And I... I know we all both know you've done this against me. But I want you to know I love you. And I want to forgive you. I want, in fact, I'm concerned that you would even commit a crime like this. So I I not only want to forgive you, I want to get involved in your life. I want to become your friend because I think I have the power and the influence to actually change you. I I, I think I can make you a new person, right? We need to meet together before we stand before the judge because once we're before the judge, once the gavel comes down, there's nothing I can do. So let's meet together before it's too late. I will meet you anywhere at any time. Could you imagine what it would be like to get that letter? I mean, you think, what, this is some kind of cruel joke? Are you kidding me? The charge is dropped. I get my life back. I get a new life. My, my victim becomes my great friend who's going to help me. Could you imagine what it would be like to get that letter? My brothers and sisters in Christ, you got that letter, didn't you? Here's the letter. That's what he has done for you. And now he calls you, especially you who are keeping him at arm's length. And he's saying, you need to settle with me before we stand with the judge. I will forgive all of your sin because I have taken the fire of God upon myself. You know, he says in John 5 and verse 24, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and and will not be condemned will not be condemned. How? Because I believe Him who has sent the Lord Jesus Christ and I have bowed my knee, my friends. I, not because I am good or kind or generous or righteous, I, because of the work of Christ, will never be condemned. He says you have passed from death into life. Right? I've already passed through. I don't know about you. One day I'll die, but I'm walking through a door into real life. I already have eternal life based upon the gracious gift and the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And my fear is that some of you just drop in week after week after week. And you say, one day, one day, one day I'll come. And my prayer for you this week, and and as I was working on this sermon, and even I'm praying in my heart now that you would hear the urgency of Christ. Settle before it's too late. The court date is coming. Settle. Some of you say, well, I'm just going to get in front of him. I'm going to tell him I'm a good 
good person. I'm just going to, you know, I'm not guilty. I don't know what this guilt is. I'm going to argue my way in. Do you know what it's going to be like to stand before him? You think, well, I'm pretty good on my feet. You know, I, I, I think I could talk my way in with this judge. The Bible says he dwells in unapproachable light. He's not some old man sitting in a recliner who wants to talk about some of the bad things you've done. He sits upon a throne. The book of Revelation says there's fire and thunder and lightning around it. The angels cover their face in his presence. There are a hundred million angels bowing in adoration. When you stand before him, it'll be like nothing you've ever imagined or experienced. And you won't say a word. You will fall upon your face. You'll fall before that judge. And, and Jesus says, we can get out of this if you will come to me. Maybe even now some of you think, okay, i got to settle with him. My prayer is that some of you even now realize perhaps what he's offering you for the first time. Or maybe you realize that you've never bowed your knee to Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You know, a disciple is characterized by two traits. A disciple has faith. That, that is, a disciple has, has received by faith what Christ has done for him. He, a disciple believes that Jesus is the Son of God who died for your sins and rose on the third day and has received all that work on their behalf. A disciple is characterized by faith, and a disciple is characterized by repentance. That's submission, right? That's Jesus is my Lord. I bow my knee. I live for you now, Lord Jesus. That's why the Bible says in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord, that's repentance, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that's faith, you will be saved. Why don't, if you'll just bow your head just for a moment. We're not going to do anything weird or strange. Just... Um, but my hope and prayer is that there is one here who will now by the work of Holy Spirit in their heart settle with the Lord Jesus Christ if you're willing to do that you will perhaps pray something like this in your heart Jesus I believe you are the son of God who died for my sins and rose again I believe you took the fire of God upon yourself so I would not have to You say that to him right now. You would say to him, Jesus, you are now my Lord, and I surrender. I submit my life to you. You would pray to him, Jesus, you are the Savior, and I cannot save myself. Save me by your grace right now. Perhaps there's one for the first time in their life will pray that prayer, asking for God to save him or her. If you pray that prayer, uh, you'll see a change in your life. You could raise your heads. If you pray that prayer and you meant it, you will tell someone today. Jesus says, if you're ashamed of me, I'm going to be ashamed of you. If you pray that prayer, you'll find yourself drawn to reading the Bible and to talking to God through prayer, though you might find it challenging, you'll feel an impulse in your heart. If you pray that prayer, you'll be baptized, right? Because that's the first command of the Lord. You, you can't say, you're my Lord, but I'm not going to obey your first command. My hope is that you will, if you have prayed that, you'll, you'll find me perhaps today or one of our elders or maybe someone who brought you here and say, I need you to know I, I, just, I just prayed for Christ to save me. It would change your life forever. 
And for those of us who have, have of course, have fought, been following Christ for some years, we have this meal before us this morning. Um, and, and my hope is that as we take this meal, we come with just overflowing, or maybe to use a, a phrase that Mark taught us today, unrestrained gratitude, right? That we will not face the fire of God because Christ has done it for us. The reason why we won't is because he broke his body and he spilled his blood for our sins. And as we hold this cup and, 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 and hold this bread, as we, we wait for everybody to take this meal together, we, we would perhaps remember that Jesus also held the cup but his cup was the cup filled of God's wrath, and he was baptized with fire so that you and I can have eternal life with him. That might be gratitude welling up in our hearts. In fact, let us pray um, quietly uh, now as we prepare our hearts for this communion meal. Our Father, words, uh, words escape us, I think, often to try to express to you our, our gratitude, our thanks, our, our joy in that you loved us even though we were rebels enough to send your son to, to even, your word says it pleased the Father to crush the son. You would crush your own son, perfect son so that you wouldn't have to crush us. I don't understand that love. But I delight in it. And it is my only hope. It is our only hope. Our hope is not in our righteousness. But it is in your love and mercy and grace for us. And we want to celebrate that through this Lord's Supper. Help us. May this not be wrote. May we delight in unrestrained joy in our hearts that the wrath of God has passed over us. By your grace, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.